For the past six months, we have dedicated our time, money and resources to dig deep into what was once one of England's most respected football clubs. Charlton Athletic, now one of a number of clubs owned by Belgian businessman Roland Duchatelet, share scouts, players and staff within a secretive and highly controversial network. We've got the accounts of former players, managers and board members, heard from network scouts and advisors, and even obtained never-before-seen emails sent from Duchatelet in a bid to find out exactly what has happened at the Valley. You're listening to Getting to Know the Network. This isn't about how a football team lost its place in a division. The stakes are much higher than that. It's not so long ago that Charlton were the blueprint for any English team outside of the Premier League. That's a distant memory. In the last three years, the club has been through eight managers, been relegated and lost nearly half of its fan base. In fact, at the time of recording, we've had to rewrite this very script to acknowledge the sacking of manager Russell Slade, who just a week earlier had been described as the way forward for the club on national radio by 32-year-old Chief Executive Catherine Mier. Over the next four episodes, we'll be looking at the circumstances, decisions and individuals that have taken the club to war with its own supporters. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're actually going to start our journey before any Charlton fan had ever heard of Du Châtelet in the summer of 2012. Charlton's players had not long returned from a trip to Las Vegas to celebrate winning the League One title with a record-breaking 101 points. Under their manager Chris Powell, a club legend who made over 250 appearances for Charlton, there was a sense of belief and camaraderie that meant players and staff felt something special was happening. One of the first people we spoke to for this project was Bradley Pritchard, a great example of what Powell's about. Pritchard joined the club as a performance analyst intern while at the same time playing for Hazen Yedding in the Blue Square Bet Premier. Charlton sent a scout to watch him, gave Pritchard a trial before offering him a professional deal. The intern, come central midfielder, went on to make 25 appearances in that promotion season. You had a really good mix of people who all were, were pushing in the same direction. And with that, it meant that <laughs> you were you were just so much stronger as a unit um, because you you were able to trust that people were making their, their decisions uh, for the good of the club. I don't remember any feelings of resentment or or division between those who were playing and those who were. We were all still looking to to get the best out of each other because we all wanted to to. Um, to, to, to get that, that that winning feeling and celebrate as a squad, not just in 11, 12 or 13. Pritchard's memory of the dressing room was shared by goalkeeper Ben Hamer, who played 42 games that promotion season. Everyone was all good characters. There was no bad eggs in there. Um, everyone had a common goal to get promotion. Um, everyone wanted to do well. And, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty much what, what the boys did. And, they, you know, they had... You had, uh, you had men in there as well, so that helped. It wasn't, it wasn't like for the kids, it was just for, for the people who had a little bit of experience, but you know, I had, a, I had a drive to do what I wanted to play in the championship, so they, they all had that, all had that common goal. That's pretty much how it went. Central defender Leon Court played for Crystal Palace, Burnley and Stoke City before joining Charlton in August 2011 under Chris Powell. It was, it was um, one of the best 
experiences probably in my career as well because what it was it was the unity and it was like a very family orientated club when I was there everyone seemed together under Crystal Power even the ones who weren't playing seemed, um, felt like they was involved so it was a really really good experience to be involved in that yeah it was a, the work ethic together um, everyone pushing in the right direction I think um, at that time Chris Powell had a really good knack of really you know keeping everyone on the same ship and you know pushing in the right direction and that's not easy to do um, at, at a club where, where you need to keep you know 25 players happy Powell had the respect of the dressing room the staff and the fans I basically said to them I will, will never lie to you I'll always have your backs um, and I think they bought into me and I think they bought into me, they bought into the club, and they bought into the fans, and more importantly, the fans bought into the team. And I told the truth from the start with the fans and everyone. I said, you know, it's not the club that I know and love, and I want to get that back. Damien Matthew joined the club in 2006 and was promoted to first-team coach by Chris Powell in 2011. All the little fine detail that goes unnoticed sometimes around the training pitch, in the changing room, it was, it was full of men and it was full of good examples and that. So uh, if you wanted to learn, you could only but learn in that environment. We could have played 10 more interviews and the responses would have been the same. There were no disruptive elements, big egos or agendas, just a common goal. There were also staff who knew and cared about Charlton, who'd enjoyed success with the club. It was really healthy, you know, because we had good Charlton people, I'd say, like in Keith Peacock, Phil Chappell who were in the background, if that makes sense, but still done a real good job, and a, a real good job in terms of like uh, knowing what it takes for that football club to be successful. That's Damien Matthew again, describing Keith Peacock, Charlton's record outfield appearance maker and advisor to Powell, and Chief Scout Phil Chappell, who played over 100 games for Charlton in the 90s. Every day, Chris just instilled and showed his quality, not only as a football manager, but as a man as well. I've said very openly that very rarely do you get all all the staff that close together and that knitted together to be successful. So uh, I think players could sense that. We'll talk more about the meticulous recruitment of 2011-12 further down the road. But it was no coincidence that this was a dressing room of hard-working players who worked well together. Unfortunately, at the same time, the opposite could be said about the club's offices at the Valley. Charlton was still co-owned by Tony Jimenez, former vice president at Newcastle United. Michael Slater, who was the public face of the owners, and an elusive businessman now known to be Kevin Cash. Cash would never put his name to Charlton, but was incredibly wealthy, big in London's property market. In fact, his involvement was so well hidden that it only confirmed because of a lawsuit against Cash and Jimenez involving a £1.8 million loan to the club. Even today, despite his name being consistently mentioned, very few were willing to go on record to discuss his involvement. There are, of course, rumours of other investors, including one of Cash's friends named Scott Young, who tragically died in 2014 after falling from a balcony. However, there's never been any hard evidence proving that Young was involved at Charlton. Anyway, we're digressing. With an estimated wealth of £500 million, it was Cash who fittingly was the money man and key to the club's future. When they bought Charlton in January 2011 for just £1, the club was days away from going into administration. Jimenez, Slater and Cash wasted little time hiring club legend Chris Powell and six months later in the summer of 2011 completely rebuilt the first team squad. It was that squad funded largely by Cash's millions that cruised to the League One title. 
So you can understand that it was considered a disaster when in April 2012, Cash decided he was no longer willing to bankroll the club. It's still not really 100% clear what fueled that decision. The main school of thought is that maybe he fell out with Jimenez. He wouldn't have been the first to do so. There's also a belief that Cash expected to recruit more money than he did when Charlton were promoted, but we have no concrete evidence to prove either of those points. And as his role at Charlton was never publicly acknowledged, his decision to withdraw wasn't either. But by June 2012, just months after the club's promotion to the championship, it had become obvious to everyone working at the Valley that something substantial had changed. In hindsight, it, it's clear now the sort of the money ran out towards the end of the League One Champions season. That's Matt Wright, who worked at Charlton for 13 years and was head of communications for the vast majority of cash in Jimenez's reign. We're going to hear a lot from him. But, but it didn't matter. We had such momentum and so forth and the squad was in place and, mm-hmm. and, and everything was going fine. So, so we cruised over the line. But it was... Very clear, very quickly in that summer that there were um, big problems behind the scenes. There was, you know, cost-cutting measures. And there wasn't really one moment where you could pin it to, but it was just a sort of drip, drip, that everything was becoming a lot harder, mm-hmm. that bills were not being paid, that when you raised the issues with the finance staff, you know, the, the answers were, um, weren't really very satisfactory. You know, they couldn't tell when the bills were going to be paid and so forth. But, you know, as time went on, you, you had to carefully consider every bit of expenditure. You know, the companies supplying us were waiting months and months to, to get paid. My department, obviously the communications department, had one of the smallest budgets um, in the club. You know, my, my budget was fairly easy to run. But obviously, you know, we, we were aware that things were much worse elsewhere. You know, there was no investment in the pitch. Um, in the stadium, everyday, all, all the sort of everyday maintenance that needed doing around the place was being put off for as long as possible, provided it wasn't a health and safety issue, providing it wasn't a reason that we had, you know, we had to get it done to be able to open the ground to hold matches. You, you know, you have a list of suppliers for a certain product, whether it's beer or grass seed or whatever, and we were down to sort of the fourth and fifth on those lists because the first three or four had all blocked us because we had unpaid bills and so they, they wouldn't talk to us anymore. So we, we were sort of ruining all these long-standing relationships that the club had built up that, with companies that trusted us, that knew us and so on. And we, we were just wrecking all, all those relationships. So by June 2012, you had this bizarre situation as the club was still celebrating one of the most successful seasons in its history. Its future had been thrown into question. Corners were being cut everywhere, including, crucially, on player recruitment. We've spoken to many people who have emphasised that following promotion to the championship in 2012, the plan had always been that the club would look to build on the squad to add five or six strong players to turn Charlton into a competitive championship side. However, between July 2012 and August 2013, 12 first-team players left Charlton and only nine came in. Of those nine, Charlton only really paid a fee for Laurie Wilson. For Charlton and Powell, this wasn't plan A, it wasn't even plan B or plan C. This was plan get anyone you can through the door and quick. Here's Matt Wright again. Yeah, so Powell had obviously identified his wish list, um, those players that he felt he could, that he wanted and felt that would improve the squad. But then he, he's forced to sort of tear that up and then scrabble around for free signings. If you look, if you look at the players we, we signed that summer, we think Dorian DeVee, after he failed a medical at Huddersfield, we took a punt on Jordan Cook, was it? Celine Kirker. I mean, you know, these are all players that you know, would never be on, on the wish list that Powell put in place before, you know, when he's looking to, 
strength in his squad. It was just sort of, you know, who was available, who could I get in? The belief was there, the crowds were back, but it quickly, you know, and I can talk about this quite openly, it, it quickly materialised. I kept it away from the players, I kept it away from the staff. It was basically myself and people upstairs that we soon realised that we wouldn't have the money. By June 2012, Charlton simply couldn't afford to spend money and things were about to get worse. Peter Varney, a hugely respected member of the club's board, resigned on June 22nd. Bad news for everyone at the club and a real blow for Powell in particular. Well, obviously, I think it's well documented that when the recruitment start process started, the owners were going in a particular direction as regards the manager. That's Varney. And the direction he's referring to is Eddie Howe. When Powell was appointed in 2010, Howe very nearly got the vacant Charlton job and may well have done it had it not been for a failure to agree terms with his assistant, Jason Tyndall. So that didn't work out and I was very bullish about Chris Powell and the reason for that was that I felt that the whole place just needed lifting as well as you bring in a good coach. And I spoke to Ericsson that Leslie gave Chris a glowing reference from a coaching point of view. Varney had stuck his neck out to say that this was the man who could lift the whole club. The owners trusted his judgment. He was also key to the dynamic between owner and manager. Jimenez was notoriously difficult to work with. It had its challenges, <laughs> that's for certain. What I must say is Peter Varney and, and Steve Kavanagh were very, very important to me as a young manager. Of course, I'm going to make mistakes, and I certainly did, because I was learning. But I had people that had trusted me, people that would help me when I made wrong calls. Keith Peacock was important as well. And they managed Tony. I became the conduit between the ownership and Chris, so that Chris obviously wasn't spending all of his working day um, speaking to the owners, obviously had contact with the owners. But the day-to-day stuff, which was quite intense sometimes after training, was aside from them, and then I just updated the owners. Varney even convinced the owners to give Powell more time after his first six months in charge. So when Varney left, Powell lost an ally. Not only that, Varney's departure was the start of a mass exodus of senior Charlton figures. The most notable was another of Powell's allies, the aforementioned Chief Executive Officer Steve Kavanagh. Kavanagh had worked at the club for 10 years, was respected by Powell, staff and along with Varney, knew how to deal with the club's volatile owners. However, after growing more and more concerned with the club's off-the-field predicament, Kavanagh resigned from his position on the board on July 24th. He also then tendered his resignation from his position as CEO and was placed on gardening leave by Jimenez. That's a lot of experience to lose in the same month for any club. With no Kavanagh or Varney around, um, who were always sort of happy to talk to the media as needed and were, you know, skilled media operators in that regard, they could handle themselves and answer tough questions and, and so forth. Um, you know, without them, then there was just no one to talk to fans and... Uh, and to reassure them, when the money dried up, they quite literally had nothing to say. They had no answer to any question. So there was no point, they thought, in them talking to anybody. You know, they, couldn't, they couldn't answer any questions that were offered to them. They had no narrative uh, to, sell, to sell to the fans. They had no plan at all. So what, what could they say? So they just retreated further and further. That's Matt Wright describing Tony Jimenez and Michael Slater. As Varney and Kavanagh departed, with them went any hope of direct communication from Charlton's boardroom. It was obvious something was wrong, but fans weren't being told that. We've also been told by various sources that at the time, 
In late July 2012, the club didn't possess the money to pay the players. By the end of the month, the money was found and just but it was clear even then that something would have to change. Now, we're not going to go through every twist and turn of 2012-13. We're conscious this series is called Getting to Know the Network, and we've hardly recognised their existence yet. But given the chaos in the summer and the hand-to-mouth existence the club was living, it would be unfair not to mention what a remarkably positive season for the club it was on the pitch. The lack of any real investment in recruitment was probably reflected in Charlton's start to 2012-13. Only a handful of Pals squad had played consistently at championship level, so it was no surprise that it took them a while to find their feet. They managed one win in their opening 10 games, and as many expected, it looked like his team would be locked in a relegation battle. However, November was a turning point, and Charlton won 14 games, ending up ninth, just three points away from a playoff spot. In truth, that was a bit of a false position. Charlton spent most of that season talking about avoiding relegation. Powell and his staff had overachieved, on a very small budget. I asked them, what do you want from the club? And they said, we want to be in the championship within two seasons. We've done it in one. And then it was, we'll stabilise in the championship and then make a run for it. Well, we were ahead of schedule. We finished ninth and three points off the playoffs, so we were ahead of schedule. It's hard to argue with that. The players and the staff were doing a great job of carrying a club that was in reality in a dangerous place. Without playing down the team's success, it's worth pointing out that the 2012-13 championship was a ridiculously tight league. Although Charlton were three points off a playoff spot, they were also only 11 points away from the relegation zone. So when they didn't add to the squad in the summer of 2013-14, there was a feeling within the camp that it was going to be a much tougher season. When I had to release Brady Wright Phillips, Danny Haynes, Ricardo Fuller, you know, strikers at the sharp end, players that you need to score goals. I was promised, oh, these players can go and we're going to bring in better players. And of course we didn't. And I had a meeting in central London with my staff and, and Tony and Michael Slater. And it was all, oh, you have to move these players on. We're going to give you five or six big players. I said I'd rather them in the building by June so we can plan and... Sadly, no one came in June. No one in July. You know, I think it was right towards the end. I think I picked up Wood on trial, Simon Kirk on trial, and Marvin Schneider. I think they were the three. And in fact, the week before the start of the season, the only senior striker they had on their books was Jan Kermagant. Church and Sordell were signed two days before the opening day defeat at Bournemouth. But even then, the squad was thin. And three weeks later, Charlton's problems spilled over, literally. If there was one game that perfectly illustrated the club's problems, it was the visit of Doncaster Rovers on August 24, 2013. Having started their championship season with two defeats and a draw, the fast that ensued was the result of months of financial neglect to the football club. On the pitch, Powell's men were 3-0 down within 25 minutes. Underneath it, the Valley's drainage system had collapsed. The match was abandoned because of a badly waterlogged pitch with Charlton 3-1 down. It was the first of three Charlton home matches to be postponed or abandoned that season due to pitch problems. Charlton's groundsman at the time was Colin Powell. He had been at the club for 22 years and had warned the owners that something needed to be done. I mean, there was loads of reports we put in and, um, you know, it was 
basically get the you know the money to to spend it on and you know just sort of get by and you know I mean it, that's what we done. I mean that was Charlton at that time. You know we we just sort of I mean had some brilliant staff there that worked for practically nothing. You know so didn't really question it, but you knew in the end it would actually come to uh, bite you on the backside. Really, you know I think the last thing that club wanted to spend it on was sort of, you know, a big investment on the pitch. So understood it, but mm-hmm. didn't make it any easier, really. Even if the club had the money to spend on solving the drainage problems, which it didn't, nothing could be fixed before the end of the season. Off the pitch by this stage, half of Charlton's team only had a few months left on their contracts. Jan Kermigant, Johnny Jackson, Ben Hamer, Michael Morrison and Chris Solly, among others, had around 12 months remaining. Players needed new contracts, Jan did, and when you think about it, they'd done exactly what I asked of them in League One and the first year in the Championship. And Johnny Jackson, Chris Solly, Michael Morrison, Jan Kermigan, they were all deserving of new deals because they had a year to go and they were sought after players and we would lose them. And that wasn't acted upon and I knew that all of a sudden we are going to have a season of struggle um, and we did. Powell would not sign another contract before his players were rewarded for their impressive efforts. And with Jimenez now desperate to sell, that wasn't about to happen. Powell's staff were in the same position. No one knew how much longer they would be at Charlton. I wanted the players looked after first. I know, of course, everyone, you need to look after yourself. But I wanted the players to be rewarded because they're the important ones. No matter what you do at a football club, they're the ones that you have to cajole. The ones you have to manage, the ones you have to pick up when they're down, the ones you have to keep on an even keel so they don't get too high, and they weren't given those contracts. In September 2013, LA property developer Darius Kakshuri provided Jimenez with a £1.8 million loan to help ease the club's cash flow problems. The same month, Chris Solly, Joe Piggott and Nick Pope all signed new deals at the club. But two months later, at the end of November, the club failed to pay its players on time. In fact, the team played out a 1-0 defeat against Ipswich at the Valley, having not received their paychecks. The money was found again, but questions obviously were being asked. A month earlier, staff at the Valley had also been paid late. The feeling of uncertainty and worry was growing. His groundsman, Colin Powell again. You know, all through my time at Charlton, and I can honestly say this, I... Just cut the work and love going into work. Um, in the end, I dreaded it. You know, I mean, I must admit, I dreaded going in. You know, and that's very unusual for me because you know I loved it. And uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was a difficult time. He wasn't the only one, and by this stage, Charlton were in real danger of going into administration. Staff sort of around the club were worried for their jobs. Um, they were worried about getting paid. I mean, things almost turned a full circle because when Jimenez and Slater took over that month, there was a very real possibility. Well, it would have happened, really. The staff wouldn't get paid that month had Jimenez and Slater um, not taken over. That, that's sort of how bad things were. The club was in a, was in a real grim state, and, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. But, you know, so we rectified the situation and got promotion and so forth. Um, and then everything went full circle. It was very much a dire situation and the club needed someone to take over. 
American investor Josh Harris, owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, looked like a possible saviour. In November 2013, talks were so advanced that he even completed due diligence before pulling out following a disagreement over the asking price. The situation looked bleak until all of a sudden, very, very quickly, the club was taken over. Belgian businessman Roland Duchatelet, a former politician, a multi-millionaire through his microelectronics company and a multi-club owner, was set to add Charlton to his network of clubs that already included Standard Liège. It took less than a week for due diligence to be completed and his company, Starpri NV, to acquire 100% of the club's shares for around £18 million. Catherine Mier, a 32-year-old lawyer, was added to the club board and Richard Murray, a former owner of the club, was made non-executive chairman. After the sale, Michael Slater boasted that they had left the club in a better state than they'd found it and that the time was right to pass the baton on. And after months of no communication with fans, Jimenez wrote a blog in the Huffington Post suggesting the same. His head of communications, Matt Wright again. I looked it up, actually. Um, it's, it's a, as a custodian of Charlton Athletic, I felt a great responsibility that we should only relinquish control to someone in whom we have faith and feel can make a positive difference to the football club. He sort of went on to refer to time wasters. We felt he didn't have the club's best interests at heart. When, you know, obviously the only interest he was concerned with were his own, you know. All, all Jimenez and Slater were interested in were getting as, well, well Jimenez uh, was getting back as, as much money as he could to recoup the losses he'd made. You know, they didn't care who the next person was. They, they just wanted the first idiot who'd come along and agree to their price. And all, all the comments about, you know, we're handing the baton over to someone who can take the club places and, and so forth. You know, no interest in that whatsoever. I don't, I don't believe that for a moment. Duchatelet, meanwhile, inherited a club in the lower reaches of the championship, losing around £5 million a year. A team who were largely out of contract and a pitch that was in no way conducive to playing football. However, the squad still had some really good players. Yes, it needed additions, but Duchatelet had January to solve that problem. Charlton also had a talented management team with a proven track record in United Dressing Room. And finally, after 18 months of uncertainty and neglect, Charlton fans were more than ready to get behind a new owner because it couldn't get any worse, could it? In episode two, we reveal the emails Roland Duchatelet sent to Chris Powell in January 2014. That's next time on Getting to Know the Network. <laughs>